Thank you, Jordan. What does it mean to be a cross-shaped community? I want to begin by asking you, do you have a bucket list? Seriously, now, hands up. Do you have a bucket list? I see uh, Sylvia's got her hand up here in the front row. Murray put his hand up. Um, and m m most of you are lying, I think. Um, <laughs> What is a bucket list? I used to hear this term and I thought, well, what does that mean? And I, I assume it means that it's a list of things that you want to do before you kick the bucket. Isn't that what it means? It's what it means, isn't it? What I want to do before I kick the bucket. <clears throat> it's a little bit morbid, and yet usually these things are things that are exciting. Like for some people it would be skydiving. For me, um, I would never put this on my bucket list because my assumption would be I would kick the bucket if I tried it. <laughs> I envision myself laying in pieces on the ground with an undeployed uh, parachute still on my back. But what I find interesting when I think about skydiving, and you can find lots of pictures on the internet of this, is the people who are doing it, like this guy's in free fall, which by the way means there's another person beside him in free fall with a camera taking this picture. But nevertheless, it seems like people always have a smile on their face when they're doing this, which makes me really wonder, am I missing something or are they just crazy. Because for me, all I can think about is I would certainly kick the bucket. But you know, death is a theme that we find all through scripture. We talked about it last Sunday, actually. To be a cross-centered church is to be in continuous celebration and recognition and acknowledgement that the only reason we are followers of Jesus, the only reason we can say that we're saved is because of the cross, that Jesus gave his life for us. And that's actually where our passage begins in verse 31, is with Jesus before the time, before the time that he would go to the cross, he begins to teach and explain to his disciples that this was going to happen. It was actually very kind on his part. He's preparing them for what would be a horrendous event for them as his disciples to see their, uh, their master arrested and then to know that he is crucified on a Roman cross. You see it there in verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. Now what's remarkable about this is the reaction of the disciples and Peter here is the one who's called out, although I think he's representative of all of the disciples. But verse 32 tells us that Peter took Jesus aside after hearing Jesus say, I'm, I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer and die. That Peter literally takes him aside. And so picture this in your mind. Peter taking uh, Jesus aside and rebuking him, it says, for what he was explaining to them about his coming death. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, why, why would Peter do that? Jesus is the rabbi. Jesus is the master. Peter is the disciple. He's the student. He's the learner. So it's kind of shocking that Peter would take his rabbi aside and say, no, no, you got this one wrong. Why would he do that? It's because he couldn't comprehend this truth, that the Son of Man must suffer. He must suffer. And so he rebukes Jesus 
Luke's gospel, I believe it is, he, he says, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. It gives us a little more detail. This can never happen to you. Now, I think part of the problem here for Peter is if Jesus dies, what happens to the disciples? Didn't seem to fit his narrative that to follow Jesus was gonna be good for him. So he rebukes Jesus. But then we find another shocking rebuke in verse 33, where Jesus turns the rebuke around. And notice what it says here, Jesus turned and looked at his disciples. Now why would he do that? Remember, Peter has taken Jesus aside. So picture Peter and Jesus, they're off on the side here. But when he prepares himself to rebuke Peter, he looks at the rest. Why would he do that? I wonder if it's because they they said, Peter, you go. You go talk to him. You go ask him this question. You go tell him that this isn't right. Uh, for, for whatever reason, he, it tells us so clearly here, doesn't it? He turns and looks at his disciples. Why? Number one, because they couldn't comprehend the suffering of Jesus. They didn't want this to happen, and they didn't know what would happen to them if Jesus suffered. But his rebuke to Peter is in these words. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Now, for all of our good thoughts about Jesus, this is shocking. I mean, this has got to be one of the most shocking statements that Jesus makes in the Gospels, isn't it? That he would turn to one of his disciples and, and call him the devil. Don't, don't try that with your spouse. <laughs> don't try that with your children. Please don't do that. We would, we would just never do that. We would never call anyone the devil, but Jesus did which raises our awareness to the seriousness of his rebuke back to Peter. And notice how he concludes. He says, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And by the way, I think one of the reasons he rebuked him as as Satan or by calling him the devil is because he could hear the whispers of Satan coming through the voice of Peter. Why? Because the devil didn't want Jesus to die for humanity. He didn't want Jesus to follow through with the Father's plan, but of course the Father's plan and the Lord's plan for himself was that he must suffer. We are a cross-centered church because we believe this to be true, that if it wasn't for the suffering of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, there would be no hope for us. We do not believe that we can just be good that we can please God by being religious. We believe there is no hope for us except through the cross of Jesus. That's where forgiveness comes. That's where salvation comes. So two chapters later here in Mark, Jesus would say of himself, I've come to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And how many other countless verses are there in scripture like these next two, Hebrews 9, without the shedding of blood, there is no Forgiveness, And by the way, all of the Old Testament sacrifices only were meant to point towards the ultimate sacrifice of the Son of God, Jesus. Or 1 Peter, here's Peter now writing after having tried to rebuke Jesus and say, no, no, you can't die. Now Peter here in writing his letter years later says, no, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Now he understands. The suffering of Jesus was absolutely necessary. What's interesting, though, is how the story turns now in verse 34. 
And there's no doubt in my mind that Mark, as he's writing this, as he's arranging his gospel, intends for verses 31 to 33 to be closely connected to verse 34. We even see the connecting word here in my English translation. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. And now he's gonna shift his focus from his own suffering. Remember, he was explaining to his disciples, I need to suffer. And now he's going to shift to another kind of cross. You'll see it there in a few verses where he, he's going to tell his disciples and the crowd that they must take up their cross in order to be his disciples. So this is the shift that's about to happen now in these next five verses, verses 34 to 38. Don't you find it interesting that he calls the crowd to him along with his disciples? Mark is careful to point out to us here there's two groups of people here. There's, there's the apostles, the 12, we call them. Jesus had already chosen them. Uh, most of them, other than Judas Iscariot, are literally gonna become the foundation of the church. He is training them, he's preparing them to take the Christian message into all the world so that the Christian faith can be established internationally and they're gonna be successful at that. They are in training, they are already his disciples. The crowd represents another group. A group of people who'd come to be interested in Jesus. They were wondering about him, they'd heard about his miracles, they maybe had, they had seen some of his miracles. Some of them had come there hoping for a miracle, for some physical ailment they had or that a loved one had. Or they'd heard about his teaching. They wanted to come and hear what he had to say. They were inquisitive, curious. Maybe they respected Jesus. But, but they're distinguished from the disciples because it would seem that they haven't yet chosen to follow him in the way that he ultimately invites all of us to follow him. It's important to note that what he's about to say to these people isn't just for his disciples, it's for everybody. That's who the crowd represents, the rest of us. Everybody is meant to hear these words. Now partly I want you to see that this message that he's about to give them is a salvation message. Now this is controversial in some parts of the Christian church, but it's not hard for me to prove it to you because notice the language that Jesus uses starting in verse 35 after he speaks of this cross that he wants us to take up. Notice what he says in verse 35, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. It's pretty easy to prove that what he's talking about here is salvation. It's a salvation message. Go on and read the next verse. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? You see, it's a salvation issue here because salvation is about securing my soul with Christ for eternity. To forfeit my soul means that I have lost the opportunity for salvation. I'm not saved. I don't enter into eternity secure in Christ. And then he says, in verse 37, what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? It's a salvation issue. 
And then he says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Point being, this is ultimate. This is an ultimate message. Your response to this message is ultimate, and your eternal destiny hinges on your response to this, to this very thing. Well, what is it? What is it that he wants to say to his disciples and to the crowd. Well, he begins by saying, verse 34, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Now again, when Jesus talks about being his disciple, this is a salvation issue. How do we know that? Because in the Great Commission, when he sends his disciples out into all the world to establish the church, to preach the gospel, what does he say to them? He says, go and make disciples of all nations. Do you see it? So this issue, when he's talking about being his disciple, he's talking about salvation. We don't, we don't divide these two things and say, well, you, you, can, you can be saved and then you can decide whether you want to be a disciple. That's not the way Jesus saw it or knew it. So he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now remember, he is saying this in response to Peter rebuking him when he spoke about his coming cross and his coming death. Peter rebukes him. Jesus turns it around and says, no, I'm going to rebuke you. And then he's going to build this teaching on the foundation of the reality that he would have to go to the cross. And now he's going to say to his followers, there's a cross for you too. Now, this is not popular. This is not appealing to us naturally. But it is so crucial. Notice again in verse 38. Because I know for some of us, we are already recoiling at these words. Already. And I get that. Because for the early years of my Christian faith as a young man, my least favorite words of the Bible were the ones in red. I'm just telling you the truth. For me to read words like this as a young believer, as a young man, was terrifying. I didn't understand it. I didn't like it. My hope for us today is that we can understand these words and find beauty in them, but we're not going to do this. We're not going to dismiss these words. Did you notice verse 38? If we're ashamed of his words... He doesn't say there just if you're ashamed of me. No, if you're ashamed of my words. You see how he tucked that in there? At a place where he's going to say some of his hardest words. And he's going to say the test of your salvation, of your eternal destiny, hinges on how you respond to my words. So we listen very carefully. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Do you know that this word deny is the exact same word that's used of what Peter does just a few chapters later in the Gospel of Mark and in all the Gospels where he denies knowing Jesus? It's the same word. In fact, the most common way that's not used, it's about 11 times it's used in the New Testament. Most of them are referring to what Peter did when Jesus was arrested and Jesus predicting what Peter would do when he was arrested. Jesus predicted, Peter, you're going to deny me 
three times, and then that's exactly what Jesus, what Peter ends up doing. It's the same word. The denial of Peter, of Jesus, when he denied knowing Jesus, it's the very same word that Jesus is using here for us now, when he says that if we want to be his disciple, we have to deny ourself. So what's the connection between those two things? Let's think about that for a moment. Here's a simple way that I I think we we can understand. To deny is to say no to. So when Peter denied knowing Jesus, someone came up to him and said, well, you know Jesus, no. You were with Jesus, no. You're one of his disciples, no. You see how that works? It's like when your kid asks for something in the grocery store, no, right? It's a denial, no. So when we deny ourself, it's the same thing. To deny self is to say no to self. This is so important today because our culture has completely twisted this. Our culture tells us that the right way to live is to worship self. That's what culture tells us today. Find yourself. Love yourself. Be yourself. Jesus says, deny yourself. Say no to yourself. Now, I know, I, this, this just it rubs us. It's abrasive. But here's the thing that we miss is how positive a thing that this really is for us. I mean, how many of us are struggling with something in our life? And the answer to that struggle would be simply this. That if we could simply do this, I mean, how many of us in this room, and I'll just put my hand up, would really do well to just exercise a wee bit more, or maybe a lot more? But the problem is, is when we get up in the morning, self says, I don't feel like it. But if only we could learn to say no to self, to say no to that feeling, and to say yes to what would be good and right, we would be in a better place. We would be healthier. Our mental health would be better. This applies to so many aspects in our life. We struggle with sin, we struggle with pornography, we struggle with an addiction to these types of things, and at the bottom of that is an idolatry that says, I'm the most important thing here. And if I feel tempted towards some sin, often the temptation, and this is what the devil says, is you, you, you need this, you want this, and because we bow to the idol of self, we say yes instead of no. Jesus is saying this, this is the Christian life, is learning to deny yourself. You ever wonder why the Bible teaches us so much about fasting? Now, we don't talk enough about this, and most of us don't do this the way we ought to. The Bible actually teaches fasting as something that we ought to do. When Jesus was asked, asked about his own disciples and the Pharisees, who fasted uh, kind of legalistically and they come to Jesus and say, how come your disciples don't do this? His answer was, well, it's because the bridegroom, the groom, the Messiah, he was meaning, was with them in that moment. He said, there's a time coming when the bridegroom will not be with them and then they will fast. 
And you see, we're living in that time when Jesus assumed that his followers would fast. And what is fasting? Fasting is the denial of self. And if we can learn to say no to food as a way of worshiping God, as a way of saying, God, you're the most important to me, as a way of saying, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word of God. It's, it's just a way of expressing all of those truths, expressing our dependence on God, showing our passion and desperation for him. But as we do that with something like food, what are we doing? We're training ourselves to say no to self. And for so many of us, that, that, that is what we need desperately today. We need to learn with God's help to say no to self, to deny ourselves. Well, Jesus goes on. Verse 34, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself and take up your cross. Now, this rubs too, doesn't it? We learned about the cross last week. We know about the cross. The listeners here would have known about the cross. What they hadn't seen yet was the cross of Jesus. But they'd seen lots of crucifixions. It was a horrific thing to see in the time of the Roman Empire when they came into places like Israel and they occupied those lands and conquered those lands and then the inevitable uprisings would come, right? Where the zealots and the people who hated Rome would band together and try to undermine Rome's authority and try to perhaps in some cases kill a Roman soldier or not pay, refuse to pay taxes to Rome and Rome's policy was if you rise up against us we will crucify you. It was an execution, perhaps the most vile, horrific form of execution ever devised within human history. And yet Jesus uses this vile practice, this horrific practice, this wicked practice, to describe what we should do in order to be his disciple. Now, is that not bizarre? Oh, Jesus, how could you, why that? Why would you use that instrument, that thing, to be representative of something that you're calling us to do? What does it mean? If you lived in those days and if you saw someone carrying a cross, that had meaning. If you saw someone carrying a cross, you knew that they were going to die. Now, there was no one who ever did that by choice, of course. It was always by coercion. It was by being arrested by the Roman authorities and by being sentenced to death and then being compelled by force to carry this cross to the place of execution where you'd be nailed or tied to it and you would die there eventually. Sometimes it would take days. If you saw someone carrying a cross, what you knew was there's a person who's about to die. And I would argue that that is the one thing that we are meant to take away from this imagery. That when Jesus says that we are to take up our cross, what he's asking of us is to lay down our lives. Really what it is, it's an extension of the first thing he'd said, which was deny yourself, say no to yourself. Now he's going to ramp that up and expand upon it and say, okay, so here's what you really need to do. You say no to yourself, you literally lay yourself down. You give up yourself, your life. 
Not to the Roman authorities, of course, but to the ultimate authority, which is God. We take up that cross. I want us to think just comparatively about these two things. I think this is really important that we understand what the Roman cross was and what is the disciples' cross that Jesus is describing here. The Roman cross was a cross of execution. The cross that Jesus is describing, the cross of discipleship, is a cross of devotion. No one's being executed here, but someone is laying down their life. The Roman cross is a cross of hostility. The disciples' cross is a cross of love. We're not being forced into this. Isn't it true that Jesus doesn't grab us by the neck and choke us and say, now you're going to do this? But we take up our cross or we lay down our lives. Why? Because we love him. And we lay down our lives for others because we love them. It's not a cross of hostility. It's a cross of love. The Roman cross was one that was forced upon people. The disciples' cross is one that is willingly taken up. Don't you see that in verse 34? You want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross. No one one is throwing it upon you. You are making the choice to pick it up yourself. It's a choice that you make. The Roman cross is a cross of domination. The disciples' cross is a cross of surrender. And then here's the most important thing. The Roman cross is a cross of isolation. You were lifted up from the ground. You couldn't touch your spouse's hand. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't be near your friends, your family. You died alone. But the disciples' cross is a cross of relationship. I want to go back to a year ago when we introduced our All for Christ series. And we use this cross, and when we talk about being cross-shaped, this is one of the things that I have in mind, is that the shape of the cross and those four points of the cross are actually really helpful for us to think about what does it mean to have a life that's shaped by the cross, to take up my cross. Notice, in the cross there is the vertical There is this component which is between me and God. And then there is the horizontal, this component that is between me and others. But we saw four things last year that were true of us when it comes to being shaped by the cross and surrender and being all for Christ. And the first is this downward movement, this humbling and lowering of ourselves, and we call that surrender. This is what salvation is. We surrender It's what faith is. This is what saving faith is. It's that I surrender to Christ. That I find him to be my savior. That I know that he's all that I need. That I I am desperate for him. And so I surrender myself to him. I wave the white flag of my life so that he can take me as his own. Then there's an upward component of my life. And it's that I want to live all for Christ's glory. I want to live up. I want to glorify him with my life and my obedience. I want, to, I want to praise him. I want to make him known. I want to live large for him. I want to live all for Christ's glory. And then there's these two horizontal components of the cross-shaped life. We want to be all together for Christ. We're to the right of the cross here. 
It's where we live in community, this radical Christian community. We live all together for Christ. In fact, we need each other. I mean, yesterday was just tremendous for me to be part of that group of people joining together, standing shoulder to shoulder, kids and adults, preparing meals for hungry people. I mean, that was awesome. But this is the whole Christian life. How do we encourage each other to be bold when we go into the world and share our faith? And so many of us find that so hard, but we need each other to encourage each other. We need to pray for each other. We need to serve each other. We need to care for each other. That is the Christian life that Christ calls us to. And then there's this other horizontal component where we want to reach all for Christ. By the way, this diagram, these four points, this shape of the cross so perfectly illustrates the life of Jesus, doesn't it? This is the way Jesus lived, surrendered to his Father, living for the Father's glory, loving and training and teaching his disciples and reaching a lost world. That is the shape of the cross. That is the life of Christ. And he says, follow me. And so we follow. If you want to be my disciple, he says, you need to deny yourself and take up your cross and here's the best part. And see, we miss this. I, all those years when I couldn't, couldn't bear to read the red words, this is the part I missed. I, I saw deny yourself. I saw take up your cross. I thought, this is, what, what is this? This doesn't sound inviting at all. But I missed the sweetest and the best when Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. I didn't hear that for what it was, an invitation. And by the way, when Jesus said, follow me, he didn't mean, I'm going to be way out front, you straggle on behind. What he meant was, and what the word literally means is, come with me. That's what it means. Me here, you beside me. Jesus described this beautifully in the uh, common of his day, the common language of discipleship in which he described it as a yoke. Take my yoke upon you, uh, upon you, he said. Learn of me. That was discipleship language. What does that mean? It means he's here, I'm here, and we're literally linked in this immovable bond of salvation. This is the sweetest part of the whole deal. And yet for so many of us, the first two solve it for us. We look at denying self, we think about taking up your cross and we say, eh, that's not for me. What really frustrates me as a preacher of God's word is how many people, Bible teachers over the years have done with this teaching, the one that we're focused on here in verse 34, and they've done exactly what Peter did in verse 30, 32 and 33. When Peter hears about the cross of Jesus, the cross of his suffering, the cross of his death, he says, oh, no, 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 no. And many Bible teachers have done that with verse 34 when they hear this calling that Jesus has for us to take up our cross and follow him. And they say, no, 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 don't, don't, don't mix this up now. If you want to be saved, you just got to pray a prayer and believe. This is for, yeah, some Christians. If you want to be mature, if you want to be really serious, I mean, if you want to be extreme, I guess. And separating this teaching, failing to recognize all those verses we just scanned, which are salvation verses, and minimizing this teaching and boiling the Christian life down into what some would call easy believism. 
Now, I know that salvation is by faith alone. We all know that. We all believe that here. It's not by works. But what is saving faith? Saving faith is surrender. And that's why this teaching of Jesus is so important. Because the reality is that when you deny self, when you take up your cross, when you surrender your life and follow Jesus, that is a description of faith. I mean, just ask yourself the question, if I were to say to you, have you trusted Christ for salvation? Oh yes. Have you trusted the rest of your life to Jesus? Like, have you surrendered the rest of your life to Jesus? Oh no. As though we're actually trusting him because this component about, you know, trust me and you can be saved is fine, but trust him with my life, trust him with my family, trust him with my job, my finances. No, I can't trust Jesus for that. What he's asking for is to trust him with our whole lives. And when we do that, what do we get? We get him. We get him. I dare say there are people who have thought of salvation in this easy believism kind of way. They've refused to deny themselves. They would not take up their cross and yet somehow think they've got Jesus. I dare say this could be the kind of people that Jesus described in other teaching where he said, some will come to me in that day and say, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? And I'll say, I never knew you. You see the relational component of that? I never knew you. We didn't have a relationship. You weren't yoked in beside me. And how do we know we're yoked in beside Christ? It's because we've surrendered our lives to him by faith. It's a great view in the plane, you know. I mean, I'd be delighted to be in the plane, especially if I'm strapped in. To look out over the landscape, maybe get to see my house, feel the wind in my hair. The problem is, if we use this analogy for the Christian life, Christian life isn't in the plane. Not, that's not where it is. There's all kinds of things you can do in the plane. I mean, there's, there's games, there's activities, you can watch TV. You can amuse yourself. You can have a great life in the plane. But it's not the Christian life. I was really surprised when I started looking on Google for skydiving pictures because nine out of ten of them look like this. I assume it's because for companies that do skydiving and that advertise and you know, want, want people to come and buy a ticket and do skydiving, this is what ends up happening. It's probably the only way I could do it, is if you strap me into someone who know, knew well how to pull the chute, who wasn't gonna pass out on the way down. Yeah, I might do that, maybe. And do you see the point? When you jump out of the plane, you find Jesus. I mean, I know there's people sitting in this room and you hear about the Christian life and you just, you wonder, you know, you hear, you hear people preach and talk about how exciting it is to follow Christ and even to suffer for him and to sacrifice and to give your money and, and tell people about Jesus and you just, you're, you're just, you just, it doesn't compute for you and you don't understand it at all. And the reason is, is because you haven't jumped out of the plane. 
And it's not until you jump out of the plane that you begin to experience the reality that Jesus is real, that he is powerful, that he is right here. You are strapped and tied to him. And that when you go to work and you say, God, I'm scared. I don't know how to share my faith. He's right there to put words in your mouth to give you strength and encouragement. Have you jumped out of the plane? So here's the thing that I've come to learn in my life. is the only way that I can deny myself, the only way that I can take up my cross is if I just throw myself upon Jesus and say, help me. And that's what salvation is. And I can throw myself upon Jesus because he's already been to a cross. And he died for all of my selfishness and all of my waywardness and all of my sinfulness. And now when he says to me, now you take up your cross, I know he's got this because he already took his. So let's sing it. Lord, I need you.